Hi, welcome back. Um, yeah, sorry for the delay. Um, last week I was meant to bring you this episode, and this episode's going to be about romanticism and romance in general because, well, hey, it was Valentine's Day. Um, unfortunately, I'd spent Valentine's Day coughing up my own lung, lung lining because of a cold and a ch subsequent chest infection. Um, so yeah, sorry about that. I will uh, instead try to have some episodes kept to one side so that I don't get a drop like that because, you know, I, I know what it's like. You follow a podcast and then they, you know, they, they claim to be sort of semi-regular and I think people who know me know the kind of podcasts I follow can uh, probably know which ones I'm talking about. Um, yeah, where they, they sort of promise content on particular days and then don't deliver and it's just, what am I going to listen to on my commute? What You've let me down. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so that was due to illness and then I was supposed to have recorded yesterday but I had an interview and, well, it was a, a two, technically two interviews because I had to be signed up with an agency and then actually have a proper interview itself with a different company which was just horrible. Like, the, the, I don't really like interviews at all. That I find them really, um, as someone with sort of mental health problems, I find them quite psychically damaging. Um, like I, I, I stress myself out over it and I feel, you know, funny enough, you are being judged. So it's, you know, you subsequently feel judged as a result. Yeah. Um, just one of them things, isn't it? But it meant that I kind of had to spend the day prepping for that, doing that and then decompressing from it rather than sort of concentrating on delivering like I said I would. And I know this is coming out quite late in the day on a Friday as well because usually I'll shill it on a Friday morning so that people can listen to it on the way to work. Sorry, sorry again, but I had kind of had to give myself a kick up the arse to do it. As I say, depression was hitting quite bad. There's some family stuff going on as well, um, sick loved ones, that sort of thing. So it's, yeah, it's not been easy and definitely haven't been in the right sort of frame of mind to be talking about romance and and fluffy stuff because everything was a bit shit flavoured but I'm I've been thinking about it and I spent sort of most of this morning doing my usual all the stuff that I needed to do thinking about it and it's like right no fuck it fuck it I, I you know I'm just remember reminding myself I'm doing this podcast for me and I've got ideas and yeah and I feel like sh uh, sharing them with you guys so here we go um, yeah, romance, romanticism, Valentine's Day. Um, if you want a really good podcast about like the, the folkloric origins and history of Valentine's Day, this isn't it. Um, I will point you in the direction of The Folklore Podcast, um, hosted by Mark Norman. Um, that can be found at po uh, folklorepodcast.com, I believe. I think it's a .com. But if you just Google folk The Folklore Podcast, you'll find it. Um, his most recent episode is the one about Valentine's Day and its history and its, uh, you know, where it comes from. The fact that, you know, St. Valentine, which apparently the day was named after, had nothing to do with romance. There was some story cobbled together in sort of the late 18th century about how he uh, used to marry Christians before they were thrown to the lions. Apparently that's bullshit. Like, there's, there's nothing about that in his, uh, in his Santa Vita, in his, in his actual sort of Life of the Saints or biography type thing. Um, yeah. Oh, interestingly enough, I will drop this. Apparently St. Valentine is also the patron saint of plagues. So the fact that Valentine's Day has been associated with just pure capitalism and the, the plague of money and expectation, just, uh, I find quite telling. I, you know, that's, uh, that's one to take home, I think. But yeah, romance. What is romance? I'm telling you what it isn't before we really get going. Um, so Valentine's Day rolls around, you feel pressured to get the person you love. Flowers, chocolates, teddy bears, get a table at a restaurant, and you will look at, see in any restaurant this time of year, it's usually people, quite often younger couples, but just couples generally, that feel like they have to be there and do that thing because it's Valentine's Day. And Valentine's Day has the same sort of bullshit foisted on it as Christmas and New Year's, which we've already talked about. Um, where, where it's sort of performative frivolity, if you like. It's performative romance. It's performative, or what we, you know, this parody, this sad sort of sugar-coated husk of what we think romance is. We think romance is roses, 
and chocolates, teddy bears, dinners, holding hands in public, and that's it. You know, that that's as far as it goes. And then everyone goes home at the end of the day, semi-satisfied, and then they show off at work, and oh, my husband got me this, and my boyfriend got me that, or my girlfriend got me that, or whatever, you know. Whatever your orientation or, or home situation happens to be. And in the meantime, all the all the single people get to feel like shit because they haven't got anyone to share the day with, you know. And it's bollocks. It is absolute bollocks. And, and that's not what true romance or anything is at all in the slightest. I'll let you in on a secret. Romance can be performed at home on your own. No, I'm not talking about wanking. Um... <laughs> Romance is, it's it's an it, well, romanticism as a as an art form is a, a sort of pan. What's the word I'm looking for? Pan disciplinarian artistic movement. It involves uh, poetry, um, visual arts, dance, music, um, theatre, film, every artistic medium you can think of. Um, romanticism can be a part of it. Romance in and of itself is essentially it's sensuality. It's it's a sort of immersive art form that anyone can be involved in and everyone can get their hands on and stuff. So when anyone tells you that romance is your significant other buying you ten roses from Sainsbury's and a box of Goulian and telling you that I love you so much, you're special for one day a year in front of everyone you know and then going home again, that's not it. I mean, it's not even necessarily love as such. I mean, there's like love and romance are, are conflated together so often that people think they're the same thing, and it's not at all. Love is an emotion, and love is a complicated, frightening, terrible, brilliant, you know, all in, it, you know, it, 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 it's such an integral part of the human experience that I don't think I could do a podcast on it. I don't think anyone could do one single podcast on it. You have to do several seasons, I think. Um, the Greeks had as many different words for romance as um, allegedly certain tribes of uh, First Nations people in Canada apparently do, but I think that like, do for snow, as it were, but uh, I think that's cobblers as well. I think that's just one of those urban myths. We've got one word for snow. It's snow. We've got one word for love. It's love. But yeah, um... Romance and love are two different things as well. So again, get this idea that, that romance is something that can only be done with or to or involving some, one other person. It, it, you know, this is this is bullshit. I'm gonna, you know, telling you now, you can do it on your own. And it's actually in this day and age with uh, talking about mental health problems and and how we live in the modern West and we're quite isolated and stuff. Actually, loving yourself and being romantic to yourself, with yourself, you know, in your own person, is probably a lot fucking healthier than assuming it's only something you can save to be to, for, or with, or have done to you by someone else. I think that's absolute bullshit. Um, but to get into the kind of boring academic sort of side of of romance, uh, romanticism, in fact, I'll give you a quick... The, the, the quick old Wikipedia definition, so before we get going. So Romanticism, also known as the Romantic Era, was an artistic, literary, musical and intellectual movement that originated in Europe towards the end of the 18th century, and in most areas whatever it was at its peak at uh, and the approximate period from 1800 to 1850. Um, so that's the early 19th century. Uh, romanticism is characterised by its emphasis on emotion and individualism, as I was saying, as well as the glorification of all the past and nature, preferring the medieval rather than the classical. So that's medieval period rather than sort of Romans and Greeks and stuff like that. It was partly a reaction to the Industrial Revolution, the artistic, social and political norms of the Age of Enlightenment, and the scientific rationalisation of nature, all components of what we call modernity. So it's pre-modern. In, uh, in in its sort of scope. It was embodied most strongly in the visual arts, music, literature, and had a major impact on historiography, education and social sciences, and the natural sciences, which we call biology and so on. 
It had a significant and complex effect on politics, with romantic thinking influencing liberalism, radicalism, conservatism and nationalism. So all ends of the political spectrum were influenced by romantic thinkers in the 19th century. The movement emphasised intense emotion as an authentic source of aesthetic experience. And that's what I'm talking about. Placing new emphasis on such emotions as apprehension, horror and terror and awe, especially that experienced in confronting the new aesthetic categories of of the sublimity and beauty of nature. It elevated folk art and ancient custom as something noble, but also spontaneity as a desirable characteristic. In contrast to rationalism, classicism of the and the classicism of the Enlightenment, Romanticism revived medievalism, and elements of art and narrative perceived as authentically medieval in an attempt to escape population growth, early urban sprawl, and industrialism. Uh, I'll stop there because otherwise I'm just going to be reading out a Wikipedia article for an entire podcast and that's ridiculous. I mean, if you want to, you can look up the Wikipedia article yourself. But it's a great introduction because in reading that, I and myself have realised I am actually a romantic. I am a furious, angry, bitter, warped, desperate romantic. And it's nothing to do with with oh, getting a boyfriend and getting married or, or anything like that. It is far, far more complex and ugly and beautiful and sensuous than that. It really is. I mean, we can talk about romanticism as it, it as it originated in the like late late 18th and early 19th century, and then go straight into its revival and the certain the various subcultures that sort of got embroiled in it in the 20th and 21st centuries but let's start as we mean to go on so romanticism is as defined is is the is this 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 authentic that the truly authentic and aesthetic can be felt it can be smelt it can be tasted it can be seen it can be touched it can be you know it's a fully immersive sensory experience and it's hard to sort for a lot of people to conceptualise that with just someone talking at them and mentioning sort of art and artists and things like that. But you want a fully immersive experience and you really want to get your teeth into what is and isn't romanticism or rather, you know, how do you experience it? Go to any of the big galleries in the UK. Um, I, b- I believe there's a couple of uh, paintings in the National Portrait Gallery, but find any piece of art from the romantic period and in a lot of galleries you'll find that they have big plush sort of kind of like seating areas and almost always they've got um if you're lucky enough you find one that's got a red velvet covering and i think i think the portrait gallery still has that but you plonk yourself down in front of a painting and i'm just picking one because it's one of my favorites in its composition, in its in its the sort of the history of it, in the you know, and everything. I just it is a beautiful painting that I will never get tired of looking at because there is so much going on, and it's such a just a beautiful thing to to see and have, in you know, to be in 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 the the, the what's the word I'm looking for? Be in the presence of, and it is the Lady of Shalott by John William Waterhouse. John William Waterhouse was part of an artistic movement known as the Pre-Raphaelites, or in fact he was the tail end of the Pre-Raphaelite movement. The first Pre-Raphaelites were, um, let me see if I can get this right off the top of my head without looking it up. It was uh, William Holman Hunt, um, Rossetti, and, oh shit, I can never remember the third one because I'm never that keen on his paintings. But there was a small, they were known as the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. There was a little collection of sort of extremely bohemian painters in the, uh, in the, in the early 19th century in London. Um, so-called because they preferred the sort of the Renaissance era art that predated um, Raphael, who went with a more sort of uh, brutal, realistic kind of style within that, that particular movement. So they were aiming towards the kind of, uh, the, the, this, this kind of sensual, dreamy, um, kind of overwrought 
uh, feeling in their paintings rather than the sort of like here is a beautifully sculpted person in a in a very stiff pose with a you know dramatic kind of weather going on behind them or anything it was very much the opposite of that and they were they were they were the sort of rock stars of the day definitely i mean there's a there was a great bbc tv series called desperate romantics which was the dramatization of the uh, of the pre-raphaelite brotherhood and their lives and loves and all the rest of it and it was really well done actually it was historically on the mark it not sure about some of the casting just because when you study art you learn what these people you know look like and lived like and you're like no that guy's far too good looking how can he play that guy or who the fuck is this bitch she's not such and such and you know that's me i'm one of those people i can't watch anything without having going that's not how that was that's it i'm the worst person to watch historical drama with or anything that's an adaptation of like a a, a book that i really love or or you know or, or anything like that because i go that's not that was that's not what they look like that's not how that happened and yeah yeah so <laughs> i'll leave you with that mental image and the sort of reminder that you probably don't want to be watching drama with me but um but actually no if you can check out desperate romantics i think you can still find it on dvd a few places it's if you can find clips of it on youtube it's worth it um and obviously or you know by all means i i'm a, I'm a big advocate of go and learn about these people yourself because they're brilliant because they're fascinating because it's i can't even touch the sort of the levels of ridiculous uh, ridiculousness that they went through and they did and stuff it was you know huge huge subject the pre-raphaelites uh, but pre-raphaelite art is a great example of romanticism in visual art and john william waterhouse sort of came in at the tail end of it so you had the original pre-raphaelite brotherhood and then uh, they sort of started their little club and networked and stuff like that and then john william waterhouse sort of got involved towards the end um, and it's a painting based on a poem by, oh, my brain, my brain doesn't work, Alfred Lord Tennyson, there we go, which is irritating because I was, I, I, I thought I'd prepped for this podcast quite well, again, without, I don't tend to use scripts, so I just thought, I'll remember all this, like, no, no, I didn't, I, <laughs> I really didn't, but, um, yeah, Alfred Lord Tennyson, big, huge, roaring fan of Arthurian mythology. And one of the things that sort of typifies a lot of romantic art at the time is it is almost always Arthurian in origin because it, it likes harking back to a kind of medieval ideal that never actually existed at the time and it certainly never didn't exist in the 19th century as they saw it. Um, the Victorians had this habit of simultaneously over-romanticising um, certain time periods and and completely negating a lot of the, the sort of the, the nastier sort of realistic things that went on at the time. I mean, the one of the things that typified medieval the medieval period for a lot of um, as far as a lot of uh, Victorians were concerned was this idea of chivalry of gallantry of of romance in the classic sense um we talk about the romances of the medieval period the romances were literally stories and they were the stories of chivalry and bravery and 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 daring deeds and, and fighting monsters and all the rest of it um, often told in a prosaic or sometimes with musical accompaniment because they were um, recited by troubadours who were you know sort of again very early rock stars in, in a lot of sense in sort of uh, originating kind of northern Spain southern France and um, yeah it was uh, that, that was you've got to remember that that was a fantasy in medieval times as much as it's kind of a fantasy now and it was a fantasy for the Victorians um, the real lives of people in the medieval period were just as brutal and dirty and fucked up as they are for us now. But the Victorians kind of were living at a time where the sort of the brutality of the world as we know it was just becoming a thing. So romanticism went, was, was a kickback against the Industrial Revolution, as I said in the introduction. Um... The Industrial Revolution wrought awful, awful things on mankind, generally. I mean, it's I think industrialization 
along with farming, it's probably the two worst things that ever happened to humans, full stop. We weren't built for the world that farming and industrialization created at all. Um, but the Industrial Revolution, especially for people in, in Britain and in, and in sort of other countries affected by it, I mean, it's something to remember about um, the Industrial Era is that it was funded and, and manned off the back of slavery, which uh, I think we can all agree was shit. I think we can all agree that was a that was horrible, and um, yeah, and it still goes on today. But on, again, it was the scale of it which would have frightened and upset people more than anything. Um, I've gone, I've gone, I've gone trailing. So yeah, the Romantic movement was. An attempt to, to, to sort of escape it. it. At its core, it was escapism. It was the, the desire to, to get away from this world that, that progress and rationalism and science and everything was building, which was a world of um, pollution not seen on a scale, anything like that at all. Um, human suffering, um, the fact that people were cramped 20 to tiny rooms and, you know, disease and pestilence was rife, um, at, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution brought with it um, health crises that, that didn't exist prior to that, or possibly did exist prior to that, but only in siege situations in walled cities. And here you had people that were desperate for jobs and desperate for livelihoods, dying en masse of, of diseases of, of, of caused by living in horrible, unsanitary, cramped conditions. You know, the countryside was being decimated. Suddenly, whole villages were emptied out because people were desperate for jobs in the factories and mills. And, and again, they are living in the most squalid conditions. And yes as with today a lot of the sort of the art world and the and the world you know writers and so on were you know they they, they saw poverty as like a a, a yeah, as, as a kind of virtue signal essentially the, the whole starving artist thing but these people were let's you know let's not pretend otherwise these people were minted these people came from highly upper class educated I mean, um, Rossetti was was literally a duke's son. I think it was a duke. It was his dad was a duke or something like that. And so many of the artists and writers of the time were, you know, were, were upper middle class to upper class to, to blue bloods. And they they felt that art would be a way of liberating people from the world as they saw it, from the the sort of the misery of the world as it existed around them. And much like rock stars today will, you know, write a song for charity and that's their contribution, but, you know, you're paying for it. And uh, it's this sort of almost like a, a do-goody thing of we're making the world a better place because we're painting pictures of lovely scenery and we're, we're writing pretty poems and we're talking about beautiful things and, it's, and that will make life better, won't it, kids? And it's kind of want to go, no. But the idea that this is a new thing, that this came about in the last 20, 30 years of, you know, obscenely wealthy celebrities sort of doing stuff for charity is, you know, let's, let's not forget that that's, that's, that's been going on for at least two, nearly 300 years now. But back to my point about what is romanticism and the idea of that we can all do it, we can all get involved with it. Um... And I've gone, I've realised I have gone completely off on a tangent. But to get back to my point, John William Waterhouse <laughs> did a painting called The Lady of Shot, which is based on the poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson, which is Arthurian in origin. Um, the basic story of it is there's a young noblewoman, she's uh, trapped in a tower. She may or may not be half fairy, we're, we're sort of, that's sort of hinted at. Um, but she falls in love with Lancelot. The problem is she's cursed. She can't leave the tower. Um, uh, and she's cursed to sort of constantly um, embroider um, in order to sort of fill the time in this beautiful tapestry that she's working on and such. 
eventually she just goes right fuck it i'm going to him and funnily enough leaving the tower she's cursed she dies and they and the first thing that lancelot sees of her bearing in mind she, she never saw him in life is her dead potty floating down the river and he's like oh my god this is the most beautiful person in the world who was she blah 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 that's that's a great example of romanticism that's a great example of it you know in a nutshell um this idea that that beauty cannot last that this woman is cursed to manual labor at a time when most people who were further down on the the social rung would have been cursed to work endlessly and tirelessly and it's interesting that they um that as a, as a, as a visual and as a as a literary trope that she weaves and embroiders is bearing in mind the sort of treatment of people that worked in 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 mills and such weaving cloth and the sort of horrid conditions that they had to live in it's just it's very it's very interesting to me i mean you could break down the entire um the stories you know the the, the sort of meanings behind why certain tropes are chosen and such but again i, I could go on forever um, but trying to, to sort of break it down into experiencing romanticism as, a, as, a, as an all-encompassing thing. So you've got this beautiful painting, Lady of Shalott, John William Waterhouse, uh, where you roughly know the story behind it. You may even want to re have a copy of the poem with you and read it and then look at the painting. And as you're sitting there on one of these sort of plush chairs that, as I mean, I think, I think they're velvet. They might be leather, but I think they're velvet. You read the poem and the words are rattling around in your head and you're, you're stroking the velvet and it's the rich, sumptuous colours of this piece. I mean, that's that's the thing that gets me about pre-Raphaelite art is it's not just the fact they constantly use, you know, stunningly... At the time, would have been stunningly beautiful women with long, flowing hair. It's sort of like the ultimate expression of femininity and, you know, opinions about that and that's fine. <laughs> I have opinions about that as well. Um, the fact that it's uh, it's tied up with loss and love and it's 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 so overwrought and it's so overblown and and anyone that lives in the real world is just like how can you be that wound up by emotion that that you know that that affects you but beyond that is understanding that this sort of thing this the, the, the entire full body sensual experience of looking at a piece of art is exactly that it is escapism you know that life's hard and you know that life's difficult and you know you've got things to worry about and you know that there's there's real problems in the world that need fixing and there's 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 so much but so much that you can't ha get control of and it can be really difficult to to remember why you're meant to care. Does that make sense? I think that's what art does for the most part. It's, it's you know, it's escapism to a certain degree, but it, it also reminds you what it's all about, I think. I mean, it's interesting to remember that a lot of fascist regimes, the first things they do is burn books and, and, and ban art and destroy... Um, pieces of museum um, uh, artifacts and historical artifacts and so on it's you've got to remember you know it what was it there was a point during the second world war and i think um someone said to churchill don't get me wrong i think winston churchill was a shitbag but Someone said to, to Winston Churchill something along the lines of, "Do we close the? We should or we should close the museums and such, and put all the you know because this was during the Blitz and uh, yeah we should put all the artifacts and the paintings and stuff into storage and lock them away to keep them safe because otherwise they're going to get damaged by uh, by German bombs." And it said something along the lines of, "We should lock all the art away." Yeah, what are we fighting for? And and. The point he was making was was that we are at that at that stage in history we're at war and defending ourselves and you know trying to defend our sovereignty to keep safe all that is beautiful and relevant and affects us and if we hide it away or pretend it doesn't exist or or sweep it under the carpet or or you know deny those drives within us what's the point of it all i mean yeah there's 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 shit to do and there's things that matter and there's things that need doing and there's and you can reason it out and be logical and such but 
what's the point of it all if you can't lose yourself in a piece of art? And it doesn't have to be a painting, it can be anything. What's the point of of all this progress, all this, this, this technology, all this, you know, and the suffering that comes with it? I mean, we in the West are, are sort of lucky in the sense that we are a lot better off where we are now. Bearing in mind, people in third world countries are in the most appalling state imaginable. I mean, compared to ourselves. But in the 18th, 19th century, it was the working class of Britain and it was the working class of Europe generally who were suffering under the yoke of, of the Industrial Revolution. They were the ones living in squalor, poor conditions, poor pay, um, you, know, disp- you know, declining health and so on. Um, rampant addiction. I mean, it was, the fir- yeah, it was the first sort of period in history where you had you know, a a mass health scare on the basis of addiction to a particular substance. It was when gin was invented. Um, Gin was the first industrialised, mass-produced alcohol. Uh, Again, um, another podcast sort of touches on this perfectly. Um, And there was a lot of uh, public outrage and and hand-wringing and the government should do something about the terror of gin. As if gin was the problem. No, gin was not the problem. Gin was the solution for a lot of people. If you're working 20 hours a day in a, in a windowless factory, choking back cotton or, or, or you know, metal dust or, or sulfur if you were making matches and so on, just, there, were no, there was no such thing as health and safety. It didn't exist. Um, you know, they, I remember being at school being told about the Industrial Revolution and the thing that sticks in my mind clearly was the amount of children that ended up losing fingers and limbs in the machines. And it was all taught to us in the sense of, well, we're a lot better off now because by the later stages of the 19th century, you know, labour laws have been brought into, brought into, brought into play and, and, you know, children's rights were being protected and things like that. We didn't get talked about, for example, uh, the sort of children's sex, uh, yeah, the the sex trade, and the fact that the, the the age of consent was thirteen, I think, at the time, or even younger, and that got dragged up to sixteen, and just the gen the, the the general soulless exploitation of people, not just kids, not just women, um, like people generally, it was it was awful, and it's understandable that. To fight against that, to kick against that, the the best method was was to 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 dream of a better time, to to give people something to look forward to, to, to or even look back on, to be more specific, because that's what romanticism is. It's 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 an idealization of the past and of of, of periods that either you know might have existed or never existed at all. And when you look at the, especially the costumes and such in a lot of pre-Raphaelite art, it's not authentic. That is not what medieval people wore. And also it's worth pointing out, in fact, that, that Arthurian, I mean, I'll do a podcast on Arthurian stuff just because that, that fascinates me as well. But the Arthurian period was essentially in the Dark Ages, so the sort of Anglo-Saxon period. The medieval period came several hundred years afterwards. Um, but what the medieval people tended to do in their art, for example, when writing about sort of ancient myths and ancient stories, because they did this with Greek myths as well, is they would set it in what was at the time a modern context. So you had this very weird thing of codexes and um, bestiaries and things like that and all these sort of, you know, books and stories written in the medieval period where the art would show, like, the god Zeus but he's dressed like what was at the time a modern medieval king in the full regalia. Of course, we, when we think of Zeus as a a god, we think of a guy in a toga and a, and you know, lightning bolts for a, for a wreath and and shit like that. But at the, during the medieval period, it would have been contemporary because it made it relevant to the people reading it. That was the sort of thinking behind it is you can take this story personally and you can take it home with you and you can learn things from these stories if you imagine that the people in the stories are exactly the same as you and the people you know are now. 
which is why when people think of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and all the rest of it, we think of medieval knights. Because when those stories were written up and when those the, those the artists were depicting that time, they were depicting contemporary soldiers and contemporary kings and so on. But what it was, historically, I mean, there's a lot of debate about the historiosity of King Arthur, but generally it would have been post-Roman, pre-Saxon. So the tail end of the Roman era and the beginning of the Anglo-Saxons. So they would not have looked anything like the characters as they're depicted in medieval art. And certainly, again, nothing like they're depicted in 19th century art. I mean, you've got to give them credit for at least trying to 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 sort of aim it that way. I mean, a lot of the the the, the costumery and stuff in in these kind of paintings comes from theatre, and uh, you got to remember, like photography was in its early stages at this, uh, during the 1850s as well, when a lot of these paintings were being done. And you can look at the the sort of photographs of of actors and actresses at the time playing these characters and and the sort of costumes that they're wearing and they are the same level of of sumptuous is the word and i think sumptuous is the word that completely embodies the visual aspect of romanticism everything is sumptuous it's you want to eat it you want to you want to smush it into your face you want to you want to drive your fingers into it the landscapes the the fabrics the 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 the, the elements there's there's water or fire involved you want you want to put your hand in it you want to, you want to, you want to feel it you want to you want you want to shove your face in it like that pre-raphaelite painting is quite famous for the fact that a lot of the female models had long luxurious hair and you just want to touch it and and, and stroke your face with it and it's the whole you know the food look in 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 art and it looks so delicious and why does it look it's it's almost like with the studio ghibli films that's a particular thing where the food in them looks so delicious and it's it it, it looks better than real food and, it, and the fabrics look better than real fabrics and the landscapes look better than anything you could possibly ever see if you ever looked out your own window and certainly for a lot of people their own windows at home anyway but um, it's, it's it is immersive. It is it is it is something that you can look at a painting and taste it. You can hear a piece of music and you can feel it on your skin. It's romanticism as a movement and as a as a, as, a, as a as an art form in and of itself is completely full body and it is best experienced with as many of the senses as is possible. Um, I thoroughly recommend it, actually. Generally speaking, if you go to a gallery and you make it a multi-sensory experience, it will feel more relevant than just standing there staring at someone else's painting or standing there staring at a, a sculpture or standing there looking at a thing. No, 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 don't just look at the thing. See the thing. Smell the thing. Touch the thing if you can. If you can't, smell and touch something that reminds you of the thing. Make it uh, an experience, not just a... Not just a duty, not just something that you do, not just something you did when you were on a school trip, not just not just something that happens to you. You happen to be in a gallery, you happen to be in a museum. No, 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 no. Make it, make it a full body experience as best you can. Um, it's it's as I mean, as a movement, romanticism had its place in in the sort of the early days of the sort of the dark beginnings of what would eventually become the 20th century but it didn't stop in 1850 as i mean as an artistic movement officially it sort of fell out of favor and there was a more of a drive towards realism and then there was sort of expressionism and you know all these other art movements came out of it because art was treated as fashion in the same way that it is now but artists never stopped being inspired by these paintings artists never stopped being inspired by the movement generally and it carried on and you can see the traces of it in other artistic movements and especially uh, again i'm going to do another podcast about it but especially like the arts and crafts movement the the emphasis on nature of beauty of of finding things that are aesthetically pleasing but that are handmade and that the realism of it, of, of, of the sort of literally the blood, sweat and tears of the artist or craftsperson that was involved in it. Because you've got to remember as well that 
artists were considered further up the food chain than than artisans than than people who made who did think who 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 were crafters i suppose crafter isn't really a word but you know what i mean um that, that visual artists were of a better stock and that visual artists that the visual arts itself was considered a, a more valuable form of expression than building things or making things and what the arts and crafts movement did was kind of turn around and go no up yours mate it is just as valid if not more so because people can take this home with them and 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 people can do this themselves people can teach themselves how to do this this is you know it, it the fact that there was this snobbery about visual art versus art is uh, uh, something artisanal is it's just indicative of the class system in britain as it's existed for thousands of fucking years anyway you know the visual arts belong to the upper classes and artisans were working class they they worked with their hands the dirty bastards whereas the visual uh, the, the arts and crafts movement said anyone can work with their hands it is not more or less valid depending on who does it shut your face but <laughs> um yeah but you can see that you can follow the traces of it and when sort of the 20th century came along and especially sort of the latter end of the 20th century after the war especially because you, you, the first half of the 20th century was pretty much just bloodshed an industrialized bloodshed at that i mean you know again could talk about the, the first and the second world wars until i'm blue in the face but i think we all know as much about it as we possibly can from that came the sort of the folkiness of the 60s and again i'll talk about a, a, a generalized podcast about the arts and crafts movement and the and the folk scene and and all the rest of it um but what happened in the late 70s is the romanticism of the mid 19th century was kind of rediscovered rediscovered and then reinvented which then led to, obviously, I think you all know where I'm going, it then led to the New Romantics, um, who were ostensibly posh kids with big hair dancing around in clubs in the 80s, or late 70s, early 80s. And from that, then sort of interbred with the punk scene, and that's where you get goth from, and, you know, again, it's it's just wanted to mention it in the sense of there is a continuation of, of, of appreciation and interest in the romantic movement and I mean is there any difference really between the the sort of the stereotypical kind of languid goth with massive hair and rich velvet dress sort of laying prone on a gravestone reading Keats but then it is of the, the painting like Ophelia by uh, Rossetti it is the same mentality involved and it's the same attitude it's it's I mean the story behind why goths wore black and why that became a thing is fucking ludicrous I mean as a scene goths tended to be sort of more towards the kind of upper class end of things because you had to be a little bit minted in order to afford a lot of the fashions even though it started off as DIY it started off from the uh, from the punk scene it started off as an underground thing people made their own fashions and made it their own and such but as it was more popularized I suppose generally tended to be a thing that most goths were upper middle class upper class educated and you know and it's only in the last 20 25 years or so with the you know dissemination of information and such that that i suppose the scene sort of evened out i guess and you've got more of a representation of people from all different walks of life and the fact that you could be working class and a low earner but you could still go to the library and teach yourself about this stuff you could still i mean these days it's a great example if you want to learn about the artistic movement and the history of it and the, the artists involved in it you just go on the internet and listen to a fat bird talking about it on uh, on a podcast and you can teach yourself all that um yeah so romance as something that can be experienced personally yeah it can it's i mean the fundamentals of romanticism is about sensuality it's about sumptuousness it's about about really experiencing everything not just love but really experiencing anger really experiencing beauty really experiencing fear really experiencing awe really experiencing you know any number of of an infinite amount of emotions 
but it ties in a little bit with the modern um, kind of obsession, if you like, with this idea of mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness as a therapy is quite popular. And it's for the exact same reason that there is a drive within all of us to really experience things that are good, that are aesthetically pleasing, that are that are experientially better for us than whatever it is we feel like we have to do on a day-to-day basis. We are so divorced from, well, from reality in a lot of ways. I mean, people talk about, um, you know, you, you've got to live in the real world. You've got to get up, you've got to work, work hard, you got to come home, and you have dinner and you go to bed and that's it. That's not really real in the sense of that's what we as humans are, are wired to do and deal with. It's, it is completely unnatural, it's completely unreal, it's completely against anything that we're designed to be and do. It's, it's, it's not at all. We're not designed to sit down for nine hours a day. We're not designed to, to be without sunlight. We're not actually designed to be without the grass under our feet, you know? We're not we're not built for it and it fucks us up and we try and fix it by eating loads of sugar and drinking loads of caffeine and overstimulating ourselves or understimulating ourselves. We take depressants, we drink alcohol, we smoke weed, we um, we sleep a lot, we you know, we do any number of things that basically involve not experiencing fully anything in particular or anything at all. And funnily enough, that fucks us up and it really doesn't do us any good whatsoever. So what a lot of therapists are suggesting when people come to them and go, I'm really fucking depressed. I'm really sick and tired and I'm sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. I I don't know what's wrong with me. I'd feel so out of touch. I feel like I've got no handle on the world or anything. And the therapy kind of practice that is genuinely generally sort of suggested to people regardless of what type of therapy it is they're having is have you tried meditation and it is very good meditation because it's about getting back in touch with yourself there's different types of meditation but the most popular and the one that seems most relevant to a lot of people's problems and the problems a lot of people have of living in the modern world is mindfulness Essentially, romanticism is artistic mindfulness. Alright, it's dealing with topics and subjects that are either never existed or existed a very long fucking time ago. But it's about fully experiencing those subjects. You don't just listen to a story that someone's telling you. You don't just listen to a poem that someone's reading you. Or you know, It's never done passively. You are fully involved and engaged in the art that you are consuming or you're experiencing. Mindfulness teaches you how to do that just on a daily basis. Like, what are you doing at any one particular point in the day? And it, it helps you focus down on that. And if you can look at a painting mindfully you are experiencing that painting in exactly the same way the romantics intended this is the thing this sort of thing never had to be taught to people but because of how we live now it does and that's okay i mean it's it's better to relearn something you've forgotten than never know how to do it you know or or rather to learn how to do something that even if you feel like you should know how to do it it's you know What's the point I'm trying to get at? <laughs> oh god. Um, romance is ro- yeah. Ro- romance is best experienced mindfully, and it's about mindfully enjoying that which you find moves you. And I think actually that brings me on to a very good point of introducing the music that I want to play for you guys today. Um, it's by a band called Alceste, who are a French... How do I describe them? Shoegaze black metal is, is how it's, they were generally described um, in the music press. And I was like, when I first saw a review of one of their albums, I was like, that sounds interesting. That sounds like something I'd very much like to try. Um, just because it, it seemed to tick a lot of boxes that existed at the time. I mean, anyone that knows black metal knows that it's usually sort of really jangly guitars, high-pitched screaming, and the overall theme seems to be, you know, blood of Odin and the frost of the giants and shit like that. And, it, you know, it's... 
sort of became a parody of itself after a certain point. So a lot of black metal bands decided to go off-piste, if you like, to try different things. It's like, right, I'm sick of wearing the panda makeup. Let's try and make it something a bit more relevant to us, I suppose, as, as a culture kind of thing, or, or just, just a bit different. I want to move away from this idea that black metal is burning churches and looking like an evil panda. Like, let's, you know... Or spooky badgers is what I used to call them back in the day. Um, so what Alcest did as a band was they, they sort of kind of made progressive black metal. So they, they wove in lots of different elements. And in fact, some of their albums do not sound like black metal albums at all. There's only a few songs where you're like, yeah, that's a black metal song because he's doing the high-pitched screeching because it's that particular chord configuration and it's that particular jangly sound. But some of it is beautiful it is beautiful music it's and i feel like it embodies the sort of the romantic ideals perfectly it is it feels otherworldly it it, t- it completely yanks you out of whatever place you're in at that time and takes you to another world and takes you to another place and you you feel it and you taste it you're not just listening to music you are you know you're at the bottom of the ocean with mermaids you're 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 in a sumptuous garden surrounded by peacocks and and this particular track i feel is really perfect so if the i'm gonna i'm gonna nominate john william waterhouse's lady of shallot as the painting of today's podcast and i feel like this song in particular kind of embodies it that it sounds perfect and goes with the painting ideally so you know put up your own copy or look at the one that's on the front cover of this of this week's episode and have a listen to this. This is Tiernanog by Alcest.
There we go. Um, I hope you liked that. It was... Uh, I feel like this was a bit of a rushed one. Um, I feel like I should have sort of practiced what I preached a bit with this podcast and kind of been a bit more sumptuous and languid about it rather than constantly going, um, uh, 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 you should probably, and then maybe this, and then, um, uh, I could probably tell you that, but then I'm just, I just... Because I do feel like I've barely scratched the surface of a, of, a, of a really deep, complex topic that, you know, bleeds into so many other art forms and so many other things that happen subsequently and beforehand and all the rest of it. But, it's, you know what, it's a good introduction, I suppose. It's it's sort of telling people what it is and, and it, how it relates and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, by all means, go look it up. Go look up romanticism. Go look up romantic um uh, poets and artists and such um feel it out for yourself um decide what you want to take away from it and what you want to leave um some people will never get on with it as a topic they are brutalists and realists they they like logic they like realism they like science and maths and you know the sort of the hard provable things and then there's a lot of us that are a bit more ephemeral they're a bit more kind of wishy-washy in our in our tastes and desires and drives and such. I mean, I always describe myself as like a really furious hippie as far as sort of my tastes and interests and such go. I, I like I, I, I fell into a, a kind of a scene and a movement at a time, you know, talking about zeitgeist and talking about what was popular when you were a kid and things like that. It's, it's things that made sense to me at that time still make sense now. It's just how I expressed it changed, and and the sort of the language I used would change, and the, the the, the you know the, the the sort of the labels I would attach to it would would vary depending on you know my age and place and time, and what it meant and such then and what it means now and stuff. But yeah, it's it's still relevant. We still romanticise things. We still overblow and overwrought things we still attach a hell of a lot of meaning and and uh and and emotion to things that maybe we shouldn't and sometimes it can go overboard i mean it can but as long as you're aware of of what you're doing and why you're doing it you know why are you immersing yourself in this particular thing and you know you're not ignoring the real world you're saying do you know what it's been really difficult and I need a break and I'm going to have a little holiday in a world that was dreamt up in the imaginations of people 150 years ago 200 years ago I'm going to I'm going to go and immerse myself in a in a in a in a historical period that probably never existed with characters that probably never existed in landscapes that only existed in the minds of the people that painted them hundreds of thousands of years later and in the meantime, I guess it's time to say, you know, thank you for joining me in the chasm. Sorry, I've not been quite as consistent. I'll try and uh, I'll work on that, and I'll try and remember the reason why I do this podcast in the first place. Um, yeah, I'll chuck you a ladder and help you out of the chasm.